Good morning, church. Oh, it is a beautiful day. So I have a little bit of a cold, and uh, the songs were fantastic, and I thought, I'm not going to sing myself out of a voice, and then we started singing, and I, I probably did that. So I don't know sign language, so I'll, I'll just make it up as I go. Hopefully you guys can follow along. I'm kidding. Hopefully they won't come to that, but uh, oh boy, it has been a morning. Wonderful to see everybody. We are in uh, first and uh, first and second Peter, uh, but we'll be in first Peter today, chapter two. But we're going to go through both of them eventually. Don't worry about that. Uh, Mike mentioned last week as he kicked off uh, chapter one. Uh, it's good. It's good to be back in the New Testament. I'd be lying if I said I don't enjoy preaching from the New Testament more than the Old Testament. I appreciate the Old Testament. It is wonderful, and I encourage everybody to study it. And I tend to learn a lot by doing so. But I find the New Testament to be so directly encouraging with a lot less needful connective tissue, perhaps, to some of the work that Christ has done. It's very obvious who we're talking about in these books. So it's great to be here, and the way Peter kicks this book off is fantastic. So um, if you'd like to uh, read along with me, great. I'll be reading um, the, the first half of chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you've got your Bible, follow along. If not, uh, it'll be on the screen. So with that, let's get going. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very thankful for this passage, thankful for the last several years of passages we've been able to study, Lord, to see how they all connect, Lord. It is a tremendous blessing, a tremendous honor, so much mercy and grace to be able to have your word in our possession, to be able to read it and study it together, Lord. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to just punch our ticket on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening or whenever we're going to get together to study to just get it done. This, this word has the power to change our lives until we are off this, uh, off this planet, Lord, and have gone home one way or the other. And it obviously has the power to change lives well outside of us, Lord. Help us to take this opportunity uh, to, to study seriously. Help us to enjoy and savor the word of God. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, First Peter kind of starts off, many of these books start off their letters, 
with reminder. Um, he's greeting us, but he's also reminding us through the greeting. Good to see you. Let's go over a couple things. In chapter 1, we talked about our holy identities, right? What Christ had done, and now we are called to be set apart. And it, it, starting in chapter 2, it's a little bit of a continuation of the greeting, if you will. But now Peter's kind of pivoting to the purpose for this. Why Christ was holy, why we have been made holy, there's a reason for this. And our purpose in holiness is not just to be holy. Anybody ever heard the term holy huddle? Used to reference a church that's kind of inert. A lot of well-meaning people or good Christians or whatever you want to call them. But all they do is gather up and talk about how good they are, how good God is, all the providence in life. It's wonderful. As the world crumbles and burns around, there's no time. We're going to huddle up and keep reminding ourselves about how good we are. Look what Christ has done for me and us and this close family, and this is all I need. This is perfect for us. That's not what we're called to do. It is not our purpose. Now, we do this on Sunday mornings, but these doors are open. I'd like to think that all of us, if I surveyed, said, who amongst us would like to see this church filled with non-believers to hear the word for the first time, that hands would shoot up? Amen. Let's do it. Bring them in. Now, we need to invite them, and they'll come in their time, but our purpose is not to bar the door and say, hey, 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 this is the, this is the saved space, Right? It's like the Christian version of a safe space. And here, you got to be saved. And then we're going to huddle up and feel really good about ourselves. Not what we're called to do. We're supposed to be doing something with that holiness. That's exactly what this chapter is about. Good advice straight away. Um, Man, great advice. Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. There's no time or space for any of it any longer. Any of it. These are big calls out. This is literally verse 1 of chapter 2. It's not, hey, you guys are pretty good. I'm really proud of you. You know, we're, you're doing all right. Uh, but if you, if you could find time, try to lay, lay off a little bit of the bad behavior. Don't be liars. Certainly don't be hypocrites. No. Starts right off. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Stop. If we're going to do anything as a church to impact the world, to witness for Christ, this sort of nonsense is, we have no time for it. Literally, there is just no time. The world's really good at malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I'm pretty good at it because I'm rife with sin. But I got to put it away. It's not pray it away. Should we pray for it? Yeah. But we are going to have to put it away. We will have to make some decisions When somebody's doing something and I decide I want to take vengeance into my own hand and act with malice to not do that, I'm going to be, Lord, help me. I'm going to mean it when I pray that. We hear this all the time, Lord, help me. No, I mean it, like really honest to goodness crying out, Lord, help me. I want to destroy my fellow brother in the faith. I don't like how he's behaving. He won't listen to me and he's making me mad. He's singling me out. No. In an effort to get my way, should I lie? Should I be deceitful? No. Should I say one thing and do another? No. Someone else has really got their act together. I'm struggling with malice. Should I envy them? No. Well, maybe if I just tell a few lies about them, people will understand that we're just basically both sinners. Stop that. I have been in many churches. They are filled with people like this. I'll long say some of the worst people I've ever met are churchgoers. Because on the one hand, they say, well, I I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. On the other hand, they they squeeze the necks of non-believers or near-term believers to death. Peter knows this too. This has not changed. He's seen backbiting and infighting. Lay off. You will not set an example to the world if you can't even be nice to one another. And you're going to have to take some action there. You can't say, well, I prayed. I guess it's just how I am. 
Boys will be boys. Wrong. Christians will be Christians. What does that mean? Put this stuff away. Will you fail at it? Will you struggle with it? Yes. Do you think after Peter wrote this letter and we read it today that people are going to say, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard of that. So it's here forward, no more malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and fear, slander. Well, good luck. You will stumble, you will fall. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, constant redemptive power, sanctification until I stop breathing. I depend on it and I need it. But I have to say to myself, God, help me in this. Help me to not be malicious. And God's going to say, hey, is there anybody else I've put in your life? Spoiler alert, I have. Talk to your peers at church. Talk to your fellow believers. Have discussions with them about the struggles that you have. Work as a church. But he follows all this with like babies longing for spiritual milk and then a uh, milk and then a big challenging if. These first three verses, I mean, this like these for me are mind blowing. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and being slandered, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. He's not even worried about. He's not even worried about getting the meat. That'll come. You've got to learn to love the milk first. The meat, you'll never get that down. If you don't even want a taste of the milk, there's no hope. Learn to love long for pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up into salvation. It starts there. It has to start there. If, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Ooh, man. Get a little chills there. What do you mean, if? So if I haven't tasted that the Lord indeed is good, should I not long for the spiritual milk? I don't know. I'll ask Peter in heaven. But I would say, yeah. Right? If you're not longing for spiritual milk, if you have no desire, none, like a newborn infant for the milk, maybe you've not even tasted that the Lord is good. Maybe you have no concept. Oh, I thought I was saved. I thought I'd, I'm not talking about any of that. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you this. The Bible is true. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you find that whole thing disc, dissonant or inconcordant or whatever, it doesn't make sense, it's not resonating with me, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that means. Right? There's a relationship here. To taste that the Lord is good is to spend some time with the Lord, to see what the Lord can do. Study the Word. If you study the Word and you taste that the Lord is good... Now there's a craving for that. I want more of that spiritual milk. That changed my life. Talk to any believer. You're talking this morning in small group. I'll plug small groups every Sunday. It's so great. But we're talking about people's testimonies and how there are people that are testimony, they have a testimony where they were always in church and that's a huge blessing to them. There are people that come to Christ when they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. And their testimonies are always a little bit different, but they're always very similar. There's always this moment where it's like a, a point of clarity where they actually taste and see that the Lord is good. And if the Lord is good, then his word is good. And if his word is good, then it must be true. And then things change. And then I want to know more truth. I live in a world filled with lies. You want to summarize the word? Take, a, take verse 1 and replace away with like enjoy. Put away with, with enjoy. Enjoy malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. The world's constructed on this. Make yourself something you're not. That's fine. You'll get elected, maybe. You might be able to run a country, maybe the world someday. If you feign what people want to see, good. Us Christians, we ought not be doing that. We emulate Christ. <clears throat> that was one, one slide. This is my fear about preaching the New Testament. I've got to keep trucking. There's a lot, of, a lot of words here. Okay, so it's metaphor time. 
So we're going to get right into why this passage is called Living Stones. Peter's name means rock, so he's a rock guy. Like, no question about that. He knows what's going on. This has been a, come up in, in his world a lot. But that said, this metaphor does herald from a time before Peter. Peter was called the rock. We always talk about he was the rock upon which the church would be built. Well, it's not Peter, it's Christ, but he knows this. But I'm sure his name being rock, you know, let's talk about rock. So he likens Jesus to a living stone chosen by God but rejected by men. So if Jesus is a cornerstone, what do we place on cornerstones? Why, other stones, of course, right? A cornerstone is not a building. A cornerstone is a rock, a very strong, powerful rock capable of holding up a building, but is not a building. Now, that might seem like, oh, wait a minute, I thought that everything was about Jesus. and the other. Oh, it is. I didn't make up this plan. This isn't our idea about building a church on a cornerstone of Christ. This is God's plan. God chose to do it this way. But we have Christ as our cornerstone in our lives and in our church lives. The, the stone metaphor kind of goes both ways. This is why I love this. And this is part of my, my trap in some of this New Testament stuff. In our life, in my personal life, I am a living stone in this church. But inside me, there are also stones. My stonework of all the things that I'm building up in myself with the, an with the immense help of the Holy Spirit is also built on Christ as the cornerstone. So when we talk about the church is always of Christ, this is true. Christ is the cornerstone, and then here come living stones, each of which are built out of Christ. If it's all done properly, the church is constructed all of stones bearing Christ. We are living stones built on Jesus in our life, and the church is made up of all of our collective stones and built upon Jesus. Jesus builds me on himself. The Holy Spirit constructs that, then takes that and lays it on the stone of Jesus. That's how churches are supposed to work. If you've ever been in a church and felt like, I feel like this place is built on a dung hill out of brick, bricks made of dung, you could well be right. What is going on in here? All I see is malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander. Well, it might be time to run out the door. I don't know what's going on at that church, but it's clearly not what's supposed to be happening. If Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and the stones that are building that church are also believers, you should be able to, not, I should be able to look anywhere and see the, the power of Christ at work. And these are living stones. And if, if anybody's going to go off at these times, I mean, we love treasure the word of God, but as Peter's having this dictated, it's like, well, here he goes again with his stones. Peter quotes Isaiah, and, and Leah mentioned this, great, I'm glad we... Here, Lewis, I tried, to, I tried to keep things brief, and I know I'm going to get to talking, so I didn't do all the, the cross-concordances, but there, this is a quote from Isaiah. This is Old Testament, right? Jesus' coming and sacrifice was always the plan. When I said earlier, this is not our idea, I want to reiterate that. What we preach, the things that we talk about, the way our church operates, and we, we have it organized, the way we want to reach the world through it, is the way the Bible says to do it. We didn't come up with this idea of, hey, why don't we use Jesus as a cornerstone? That's a good idea. We'll write a song about it, we'll sing it, and we'll do it. No, the song was written because it's in the Word. Immemorial. Christ was the plan. He's been the cornerstone before cornerstone was a thing. God knew. Plan A, Christ, boom. My election, standing here preaching it, boom. God knew, sovereign, all the way. His sacrifice was always the plan, and he was always the cornerstone of both our lives and the church. 
Now, you could talk about, well, I've got other cornerstones, or I used to have a different cornerstone. Okay. You can talk about building your life. I would say if you have anything that's not Christ, it's corner sand if you're lucky. It may seem like a stone. It may seem that you've constructed your life on something that's pretty good. My family name, my inheritance, whatever. My skill set, my height, my strength, my good looks. If you're wondering, I'm not talking about myself. Got none of that. But many do. And that's what, they, that's what they've built everything upon. All the different stones in their life are resting on this. Anybody ever been surprised when there's somebody in any state of celebrity and you look at them and they seem like, man, they are so lucky. They've got money for days. Their financial concerns are out the door. They have a great career doing something that perhaps I think would be a great career, but I could never do it because I'm not talented enough or whatever. And then one day, you've, you, they're in the news that they're entering into rehab, that they're suffering from extreme depression, they're suicidal. And you probably think, how could that be? How could that be? They have everything that I think I would want in this world. How could they possibly be sad? Because their stones are quite high, and they are spending all day watching their stones sink in the sand. And they're trying to stack more and more up. I got to keep going. Everyone expects me to have a tall tower. I got, and it's way, 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 way more work. Way more work. When we build our lives on Christ, when we start with Christ as the cornerstone, that stone does not move. It does not change. It never has to be polished up. It's the example for all of our other stones. Stones that aren't supposed to sit on Christ tend to fall away. I'll put a little bit of hypocrisy on there. That won't sit right. Doggone it, I can't do anything with this. No, get it out. I got this other stone, malice and hypocrisy. Why can't? No, not supposed to be there. We start putting things like dependence, compassion, love, faith. These stones sit well. And we get plenty of stones and we say, that's enough. That's enough. I no longer need to worry about how my stones look because Christ is doing all the work of my life and the church. So it sounds too good to be true, right? Yeah, here we see. Cornerstone rejected by the world. People hated Jesus when they saw him. But Capilatia, because people saw him. I can talk about Jesus and people will say, that's stupid, I don't believe it. I'll never do it. You're, you're telling me that, that something that I think is very core and fundamental to me is sin and I want to hear it. I hate that. I hate that message. I hate you and I hate Jesus and I hate the whole mess. And I would say to myself a lot of times, well, I, sometimes more I wish Christ would reappear again. That he could tell them the truth and they'd believe it. Doubt it. Christ did appear. He came to earth, was born, raised, went around, taught. People hated him. They hated him. We should expect no less. When we go out and we tell the good news of Christ, it's not going to sound like good news to the world. He was and is rejected by the world. This hasn't changed. The world will reject Christ all the way to the very end. People will not be sorrowful. I've said this before and I'll say it again. They won't be remorseful as they get thrown into the lake of fire. They will be cursing the God that would dare throw them into the lake of fire. How dare you? How dare you, God? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Look at all these stones. I spent 34 years stacking these. and You're going to throw me in the lake of fire? Yeah. You don't get it. You don't want to be with me? Then there you go. A stone of stumbling. Those words, man. And they stumble. Why is it a stone of stumbling? Everyone's going to have to talk about this. Let's do research. Not this. In verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I'll tell you what, church, when it comes to to witness and failings and feeling like you're not getting connected, remember this. Don't stop witnessing. Tell the good news forever. But do know that that good news will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why? Because people are disobedient. Why? Because they were destined to be. I don't know how that destiny switches. I can't explain that mystery. That's God's gig. Our charge does not change. But do know when you feel like, I can't get anywhere. Everybody I talk to just laughs in my face. So they don't want to listen. Or they don't want to give me the time of day. Maybe, just maybe, the word of God is right. Maybe they are destined to be disobedient. Make peace with that. Make peace with that and get back to work. (laughs) There's a million examples. We have a choice to make. And our choice is, do I keep going? Or do I stop? Call myself holy build a little wall around me, say, I'm fine, I'm done. Y'all can just be disobedient. And you're thinking, oh, there's a, there's a, once again, how can, if they're destined to be disobedient, why bother? Because we are told to bother. Very clearly, that's our charge. We are told to do it. We will be obedient as we're destined to be as followers of God. But when we talk to them, just as when Peter's talking to them, when Christ himself talked to them, they found it offensive. They found him a stumbling block because they are disobedient as they were destined to be. So what makes a stone alive? Let's talk about it. We want to be living stones. What makes us alive? Being chosen. This description of the church here is, uh, is very harrowing to me. These are words that I don't think about in any way as a descriptor of me or something that I serve with, but here it is. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, People for his own possession. If you had any doubts, our existence is to glorify him who called us out of the dark. Amen. End, end of line. That's it. That is what we exist to do. Fundamentally, I exist to glorify God. I can only do it because he pulled me out of the darkness and set me in a place aside, has made me holy, and continues to do so, so I can tell his truth for his glory. All these other things, they're all true. Christ came and died. He redeemed the elect. That's true. But the why is to glorify God. That's it. We are for his own possession. Not for ours. Not for ourselves. Not for our church or our church's good name. None of that matters. None of it matters. And if there's ever a doubt about who's unifying us, we, we, see, we see this being cast asunder as well. It's made very clear. We were once not a people. We don't use the term people very much for organizations. Uh, if, if you hear people in today's parlance, it usually is going to relate to like a race or something, uh, I guess we could say intrinsic to them, maybe. That's not always true, but generally not. If we say, oh, there's, a, there's six people groups in Africa, we would use that, that, that technology to isolate them by some, some measurement that mankind would have. In this case, what he's talking about is the church, right? We were once not a people. We were once not a church. We were not organized at all. We were all completely different. We may have been called separate peoples. Some would have been Jews. Some would have been Gentiles. Some could have been 
you know, from this area or that area or here or yonder, and they all had, well, I'm from here and I call myself a this, and I'm this religion, I'm a, I, I worship Baal, and I'm a Canaanite, and like, oh, round and round and round we go. But now what we see here is God has set us aside and made us his own. We are now a people. We are our own group. We were once bankrupt of mercy. There was no mercy. We, we were do nothing. We were getting exactly what we deserve. Now we're overflowing with God's mercy. Not my words of Peter's. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why would he pick people in mercy? I'd say these are probably the, the really great explanation here is there's two defining characteristics of a church. A real church. Number one, we are God's. Not our own, not doing things our way, God's. God's people. We might be of, from any number of places in the world. Black, white, doesn't matter. Uh, American, Canadian, doesn't matter. Uh, Roman Catholic, Jewish, doesn't matter. You confess Christ as your Savior, you are in the loop. You are one of God's people now. People argue with that. That's not true, God's people. No, no, no. It's right here. God's people. You were once not. Now you are. Boom. Do you believe Jesus Christ, Son of the living God? Yes. Boom. You're in. You are one of God's people. How do I know that? The Bible told me so. Not to put too blunt a spin on, right? But that's the reality. But how could that be? How can I get in? I didn't do anything. I didn't earn anything. Yeah, there's phase two. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now you have received mercy. You were due to die alone. You were due for the pits of hell, the burning, whatever. That was what you were due. Your sin has earned you that wage. Now God is merciful, has sent a Savior who has borne all of that for you. God has paid your entrance fee into the peoples of God. It's all from God. We were once bankrupt of it. We had no mercy. We had no salvation. We had no nothing. We were part of a group. Now, mercy abounds, and we have a family. Now we are a people. Hallelujah. Amen. But we see Peter here with a humble request as we operate as a people. Do not fall victim to living as the world desires. This is here at the very tail end of this little passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Great reminder to know that we're in exile here. On this side of heaven, this is exile. It's really tempting to look around. The world is real. I don't want to make this sound like this is not, this is not true. and It's like a dream. Or, no, this is real. The world is real. Sin is real. But grace and mercy are also real. But if we look at the world around us and we see the state of things, just like we were singing in that song, do we know the world is broken? We do, right? We do. But as we remind ourselves of these truths, we should be able to say that, yeah, I'm here, and this is really happening, but this is not my home. But I've got something to do here. I'm in exile, but I'm not on pause. I'm not just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs and wait for the end of exile. God has charged us with things to do. And when he talks about abstaining from the passion of the flesh, we see another reminder here to, to be kind to non-believers. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I love this. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, right, like, it doesn't matter. You're not going to win them. They're going to hate your guts, but don't hate them back. They're going to speak out against you as evildoers. That's going to happen, right? Those folks are, it's the world. They hate Christ. You represent Christ, they hate you. But they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? Don't know. That's why we're going to be nice. They will notice, though, and it will make a difference. So take heart. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. He's talking to people that are dispersed, probably putting up with a lot of Gentile hate. People that think this is stupid and you're a joke and why are you wasting your time? And I've heard about this guy. But, you know, there was a big kerfuffle a few years ago, but now it's kind of quieted down, right? Is this probably going to die? No, it's not going to die. Can't die. It's eternal. It's the word of God. Oh, I don't know about that. But anyway, let's talk about getting a deal for these donkeys or whatever. They, I don't know, camel deals. I don't know. Be honorable. Okay, this is a fair thing. Oh, this guy's always fair. You know, he doesn't cheat his scales. Everybody else does, but not this guy. Why? Well, Peter said not to. And he's right. We shouldn't. I'm going to keep my conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I know you're probably going to decry me. doesn't matter how nice I am to you. You're still going to go tell your friends I'm an idiot. And I believe in fantasies and all this kind of stuff. That's okay. Someday you'll, hopefully, I pray, you'll understand. And when you do, you'll see my good deeds and you'll glorify God. Not me. You were right all along. No, I don't want to hear that. Don't talk to me about how good I am. It wasn't me. It's not my truths. These are God's truths. If anybody hears my words today and they decide this guy's an idiot and you want to speak evil against me, great. But someday... When, when your day of visitation arrives, I pray, sooner rather than later, you'll see my good deeds and glorify God. God. Not Chris, not Calvary Heights. God. That's where the glory belongs anyway. If you give it to me, I'm going to give it to God, right? So let's focus on these four things. These four aspects I thought were really called out. We're going to talk about them in depth. And you'll notice all four of these point to God, right? What we see Peter really talking about here endlessly, as well he should, is God. Focus on the goodness of God. Focus on the holiness of God. The sovereignty of God and the grace of God. Focus on the goodness of God. If you wonder how to put away the bad... It's by replacing it with good. Right now, as we've spoken before, it's not like I'm going to sit down and, you know, really bootstrap myself and do some good deeds and scrub myself up. It's not going to happen. But with the Holy Spirit, and I spend time in the Word, I spend time in contemplation and prayer, seeking the will of the Spirit, consulting the Spirit in everything that I do, especially in big decisions, but they start to, that start to make its way into smaller decisions. I find little by little some of these things that plague me start to plague me a little less. I start to feel a little less malicious. I don't want to be deceitful. I find it harder to be deceitful because I'm convincing myself rightfully that the Holy Spirit is true and can change my heart. Then lo and behold, the Holy Spirit begins to come and change my heart. I'm asking for that change. I want the redemption. My good, our good is no good. We must have God. God will make the difference. You can feign a lack of mouth. Has anybody ever met somebody that you know dislikes you. And they do this. 
good to see you. Hey, long time no see. And you're like, oh, same. And you're both looking at each other like, well, I tell you what. If everybody disappeared for a second, I'd have it out. I'd scratch your eyes out of your head if I could. Oh, hey, good to see you, buddy. You take care. Say hi to your wife and kids or whatever, right? Because, but, but no, we can act. This is not acting like you don't have malice and deceit. It's not pretending to be truthful. It's actually putting that away. We talked before about counterfeit. <clears throat> you want to live a counterfeit life? Yeah, sure, I'm deceitful and malicious. Maybe there's a good idea. What I'll do is I'll learn all the different kinds of counterfeits. I'll study all the deceits and malices. Then I'll know what I'm looking for. That's not how you detect counterfeit. You detect counterfeit by spending time with real money, loads of time with real money. Then when someone hands you a counterfeit bill, you say, this is not real. If you want to know how to put away all this bad stuff, fill your life with the good stuff of God's Word. Dwell here. Spend time here. Read and reread Scripture. Today in small group, I was mentioned like, I can't always cite a number and verse. That's me to a T. But when someone brings up a point, it's amazing how these things start cropping up. Maybe I don't remember exactly where it is in the Word, but I can find it. But I know what's in there. And I can check and like, here it is. Yeah. Why? Because the Word is true. It's the real thing. And the more we know it, the easier it is to detect counterfeit. If somebody says, this really, really isn't malice, we're just, like just going to like prank them and rob them. Like, wait a minute, I think, this is, I think this is malice. I'm sure of it, actually, because we're still going to rob them. Yeah, but it's like a joke robbery. Like, but it's, still, it's still robbery. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. When we feel like we're losing the anger and despair, we must refocus. You're probably thinking, well, which is it? Is it God or is it us? Yes. I don't know how else to say it. I cannot do anything without God's help that's going to be good or useful to the world around me. But God, who can do anything, has chosen to do those good works through me. I don't know why me. Why me? I don't know. God knows. I look forward to talking to him about that. I can tell you the, the, the crux of the why is it glorifies him to do so. Somehow, and this is so humbling, Somehow it glorifies God the Father for me to stand here today and do this. It makes me want to shrink and disappear. I have no business doing any work for a holy God, except God said that I do. The man on the middle cross said I could do it. So I do it. God is good all the time. When I talk about focus on the goodness of God, the world will beat you up. P Peter's talking to people here who are getting beat up, who are losing ground. They want the experience of Acts. They want massive church growth. They want people coming in droves. And how many people were baptized? And when do we get the Holy Spirit and the tongues? And we want to speak. And none of this stuff's maybe happening. And they're feeling isolated. And they start to infight. Well, we'd be fine if it wasn't for you. You, and your, you cheated on your, the farm taxes. Remember two years ago? Yeah, but I repented of that. Well, still. I think God remembers, and that's... Anybody ever heard this garbage in churches? It's endless in today's world. Focus on the goodness of God. Second, focus on the holiness of God. Holiness means set aside. God is set aside from everything. Of course, he created it. But Jesus set the example for us regarding holiness. He never sinned. He was without sin, not a bit of it, not a hint of sin. He lived a life. He went through tremendous temptation, Way more temptation than I'll ever deal with. I never, got, I never had to go spend time with Satan. Chances are I'd probably fall over myself if I had to do that. Not Christ. Christ stood firm. 
He was without sin. If we are to be living stones, we must be set aside for his work. God will build his church on a cornerstone of Christ, filled with living stones, also built on a cornerstone of Christ. We need to be set aside. That means knowing we are holy because of Christ's work. What Christ did set us aside. God wants that. He wants us to be set aside. We are to be set aside from the world, not beholden to the things that the world holds dear. Do we have to participate in the world? Yes, we're in exile here. We are absolutely here. I have to pay my mortgage and my taxes and the bills, and I have to drive on the road and follow the speed limit. I'm subject to law and order. That's just all true. I mean, I guess you could try, but it probably isn't going to work if you stand up and say, yes, I was driving 100 miles an hour. Uh, I'm a holy person. I'm set aside by God to do this. Well, great. You'll be set aside in the jail for the next five years for contempt of court or whatever else because you can't do that. We are set aside, yes, but we're set aside for something far greater than just being holy. God is holy. God is holy because he gets to be just holy. (laughs) And what does mankind want to do? Well, we want to be God. If you want to know the truth of it, that's what pride is, right? I know better. God said, I think I might have figured out the thing. God missed something, and I'll show it up. So what we see is God is holy. He is preeminently set aside by definition. So that's what I want to be. No, my holiness comes from God. God has set me aside. I didn't set myself aside. God did it. That's the holiness we want to focus on. And that's what we see Peter talking about here. The living stones, the construct, what makes us alive, what makes us worth building a church out of is by God working in us. Third, focus on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, of course, is that God is in control. He's in charge of everything. Nothing is outside of his purview or his, uh, his understanding. It's, it should be comforting. Now, it's not at first sometimes. You think, oh, my gosh, you know, everywhere I go, God's watching me? Yeah, of course, he's God. But not, not, not everywhere you go is God watching you, but he knew you were going to go before you went. He knew exactly what was going to happen there. He knows every day of your life. He can see all of it, and he's privy to it, and he's orchestrated it. If you know that, then you know we did not earn any of this, nor do we shock God with our behavior. There's two sides to this coin. One is, hey, I'm holy now, and so I don't sin anymore. Terrible problem. The other side is, I've done things that God will not forgive. Also a problem. God has done the work. Grace is, I deserve something and I don't get it. I deserve death, I don't get it. That's grace. I, I, I commit a crime and it's a three-year sentence, and they say, you, you serve no time. That's grace. I commit a crime and I get a three-year sentence. They say, you serve no time, plus there's a new car. That's mercy. We get both. Can't explain why that is either, other than it glorifies God. He has elected us before time, existence to, before time existed to do this work. We didn't earn it. We didn't meet the minimum requirements in order to be saved or to be elect. It's all God. He is sovereign over everything. The reason we want to focus on this and the reason that Peter's bringing this notion up is that if it ever becomes about us, if it's ever, you are an earned race, not a chosen race. We've just said, well, basically, you can do it without God, right? I mean, y'all just pulled it together enough to boom. And you're probably thinking to yourself rightfully, well, that's crazy. You couldn't do that. I mean, I'm not going to try to throw shade specifically here, but man, you look at, I bet, 75% of the churches in America, 
That's what, exactly what's going on. They're doing it their way, right? They got people earning their way into the door, contributing, participating, building in. It's all part of the deal. To get you in, I'm trying to get, mount to the roll. We're doing it in a way that we think is best. Hey, you know, we talk about the Bible. We say one thing, but we do another. We didn't earn this. God is in charge. God knows what's going to happen. He knows what has happened. And he knows exactly what's going on now. He knows what's going on in my heart. And he is absolutely capable and uniquely capable of taking what I have to offer and making it unbelievable in his sight, which is really all that matters. When we feel isolated or alone, when we feel like we have drifted away from God, we must remind ourselves of this. There's an old adage I've told before uh, about the, 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 there's a farmer and his wife, they're a little older, sitting in a pull-up, they're in a pickup truck, and they pull up behind a, another pickup truck at the light, and they see through the rearview window that in this, it looks like a younger couple, and the, the lady is sitting in the middle seat right next to the driver. And in this truck, the older couple, she's sitting over by the door with the window down, and she looks over at her husband and says, how, how come we don't sit like that anymore? And he looks at her and says, well, I didn't move. Like, this is the story of my life. I'm the, to be clear, I'm the woman. that goes over here really far away from God, and I complain. Hey, God, how come we don't sit together? God's like, well, I don't move. That's... You know, you drift away. The seat's still here. I didn't close the seat, and I certainly didn't push you away. My arm's always been on the back of the seat since we were married. And you just moved away from it. Come on back. Love to have you. When we feel isolated alone, we have to remind ourselves, God's sovereign. He's not going to change. He knows what's going on. He knows I'm over here. He wants me back. Let's go. What can I do? How can I get right? I'm struggling with this sin. Maybe it's who I am. Maybe I don't know. Oh, I surprised God again. I blew it. He'll never forgive me. False, 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 false. God will forgive you. God has forgiven you. He is sovereign. If you're elect, you're in. You can't get away. It's, it's, the deal is sealed. If we remind ourselves of that, it is very helpful to know that He chose us, saved us, and makes us a people for His glory. It's not about me, my good or my bad. He chose me in the worst of it. My verse of life verse, if you want to say, is Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 is... While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. He took the cross for me while I stabbed him with a spear and hammer nails into him. He still does it. You're going to die for me? Not if I have a word. To, what am I going to do? Double kill him? No. It makes no sense, but it happened. I can't send myself away from God. So if I focus on the sovereignty of God when things are tough, when I'm struggling, when I've fallen back, no, no. If it's true and it's right, and then I, I'm saved. I'm made good by him. The work of Christ, the blood of Christ has done the work. And that brings us to our last one, which is the grace of God. The very fact that we can study this and love God at all is due to grace. If it wasn't for grace, we could have a church organized today where all we're doing is just complaining about God and how mean he is, right? Oh, woe is us. He never lets us do anything fun and everything's bad. That's why we don't like him. No, Holy Spirit changes us. We understand something fundamental now. And now we can't wait. Do I struggle? Do I sin? Yes. Do I enjoy it while I'm doing it? Yeah. Do I regret it later? Yep. Why do I keep doing it? I don't know. God, please help me. And he does every single day. I'm reminded daily that it's not about me because of the grace of God. Not a single breath we take is outside the grace of God. If you just exhaled, be thankful. That's grace. That's an opportunity to say one more word to somebody that has no idea who Christ is. 
an opportunity to cultivate a relationship. And when it comes time to interact with unbelievers, we have to be gracious. God shows us grace beyond measure. We ought to do the same. But I'll stipulate here at the end that our grace should be thoughtful and considerate, but needs to be unconditional. Thoughtful and considerate. Be thoughtful when people are misbehaving or making poor choices. Be thoughtful and considerate, but don't make conditions. That's tricky. It's a very tricky bit when it comes to, to taking God's grace and us focusing on trying to figure out how to share it in the world, especially when someone that we love is maybe making some terrible choices and they'll say, just give me some money or give me some space or let me move in or do this or that, and you know, <sighs> my grace, my love for you is unconditional, but I can't, I can't do that for you because it's not good. I've been in prayer and that is not gracious of me to do that. That's harmful. That may not resonate well. People outside of the <laughs> word of God will say, you do what? You're going to get together and pray and do all this hard work? Oh, that doesn't sound like grace to me. That sounds like a job. It may sound that way, but do know that uh, it's not. It's wonderful, and it transcends the world in so many ways. But when we show grace to the outside world, we need to be thoughtful and considerate about it. Don't just go out there and say, hey, uh, you know how God lets me do whatever I want? Well, then that's how you can have grace too, because we know that's not true. We know that's not true. Focus on the grace of God. So what about us? This week specifically, let's think about these things. How can we shift our focus to God in all that we're doing? How can we grow in holiness as living stones? If you believe this to be true, then we make up the church and we need to be the best stones that we can be. How can we become better? How can we then grow as a church comprised of these living stones? How can we do that better? And then finally, how can we impact a lost world for the glory of God? I don't have answers for these. These are thoughts, something to think about, consider, where it starts. And it starts here. Peter's preaching to us. He's not preaching to an invisible church structure that needs to be organized, however. He's talking about us. When we sort ourselves out, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in us and we accept that and we, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, we become better stones. And that makes a stronger church. And the point of that church is to do what? Reach the world. That's our primary charge. Spread the good news. Tell the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I'm thankful. Unbelievably thankful for the opportunity to stand here. Um, thankful for the grace and the mercy that a, a scumbag like me could stand up and be able to share such good news from you, God, not from me. Talk about how good you are, God, not how good I am. I know that I'm no good, and I hope everybody else realizes that this is only ever about you, Lord. When we talk about building a church and becoming stronger stones and loving each other and loving the world, it is never going to happen without you driving every bit of it, Lord. And when we start to hear doubts or feel doubts or see doubts or whatever is happening around us, Lord, help us to know that you are all the time good and you are sovereign and you are absolutely in control. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly what we need before we need it. And uh, we still cry out, Lord, because you told us to. But as we cry out, we know we're crying out to a, a father that knows exactly what's going to happen and what needs done, Lord. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to share the good news. Thankful for a church family that's uh, receptive to it, Lord. 
And I pray as we ask these four questions to ourselves this week that we find some areas where we can be convicted personally, convicted as a church, and then refocus our efforts to, uh, to win the loss to you, Lord.